Uh, it is 103. Yeah, indeed. Love it when a plan comes together. And for the next hour, it is uh, myself, John Scholes, along with Tamara Gopian, James Fireman, Sam Firu, Tamark, and LLP, the most positively reviewed law firm in the country. Feel free to reach out as we begin our discussion, everything uh, encircling the disability sphere dealing with that insurance company maybe you've been cut off maybe you haven't been approved maybe you've been told to appeal there's a, a million different ways they come at you and some satisfaction some answers at least can be had over the course of the next hour simply call into the show we'd love to get you on here lines are open 416-872-1010 416-872-1010 is how you go about doing that and we'll get to a lot of email uh during the course of the hour as well here this afternoon help at disabilityrights.ca that is the formula for that one so we'll get right into it as always we start with a a week that was case of the day sort of deal. James, what is going on, big fella? Well, you know, I'm feeling a lot of resignation this morning. Oh, okay. Uh, (laughs) In any case, looking at the weather for the next week, and this is going somewhere, trust me. Okay. uh, I noticed the the temperature is hovering around zero. It's going to be above, going to be below, which means there is going to be thawing and freezing. And that is important because when we have thawing and freezing, what happens? You get ice. Now, this isn't meant to be a science show, but the ice is significant for our listeners, of course, because that can lead to slip and fall accidents. And so I just want to talk about this. Consider this something of a public service announcement. So if you are out there uh, this week or this month or at any point you slip and fall, there are things that you can and should do just in case. Now, nobody's first thought is, what can I do? Who can I sue? It's how do I get better? But you still need to make sure that you are taking some steps in case things go badly and you do need compensation because of the accident down the road. So what do I mean by that? Well, certainly you want to do what you can to document the accident. So if you fall on uh, the sidewalk, for example, and there's ice, then do what you can to take a photograph of the scene. Everybody is walking around with an excellent camera these days. There is really no excuse. And if you happen to be the one person out of 100 that doesn't walk around with a smartphone with a very high-grade camera on it, I assure you the next person that walks by will have one and can send you photographs of the scene of the accident. So please make sure that you get some photographs of the area, of where you slipped and fell that shows how large the area of ice is. And importantly, the extent to which there was any maintenance done was Was there any salt that was put down in the area? Was the snow that had been there plowed properly? It's important because those details can really matter down the road. And in particular, if you happen to fall on property that's owned by the government, whether it's the city or the province, you want to make sure that you take steps to notify them immediately. In most cases, we're talking about the city. And so what you can do is go to the city's website. You just do a quick search, and it's the city clerk that you need to notify. And there is a time limit here. You have to do it within 10 days. And that's because, of course, there are hundreds of people slipping and falling on city property. And for the city to be able to properly investigate, they need to be notified that these have happened in a reasonable amount of time. So you do have to notify them within 10 days. But the good news is where you used to have to go down to City Hall, and actually fill out a form and what have you. Now you can just go online. There's a form you can fill out. You tell them precisely where you fell. You give them your name, your contact information, the injuries that you suffered. Now, that doesn't mean that you've decided all of a sudden that you're going to sue the city. 
all that means is if down the road your injuries are significant and you're missing work or you're not recovering as fast as you'd like and you decide that it's worthwhile pursuing a lawsuit, you will still have the option to do that if you've properly notified the city. If you don't, within those 10 days, it can lead to significant problems. And in some cases, if you try to bring a claim down the road, a judge will say, you didn't provide notice in a timely manner. The city is prejudiced. They weren't able to uh, investigate the accident in a reasonable amount of time. And because of that, you're no longer able to bring the claim. So you really want to protect it because if it does go, if you, if you do bring a lawsuit and you're up against the city, they hire these fancy lawyers from these downtown firms that wear these expensive suits and talk in high fluting British accents <laughs> to defend the city. And you know who I'm talking about out there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But, you know, really, you have to make sure that you take the necessary steps. So make sure that you photograph the scene well. If there are any witnesses, really important to get their information. You don't have to get a statement from them on the scene by any means. But you should, at the very least, ask them kindly for their name, telephone number, or email address. So if you need to contact them in the future, you're going to be able to get their recollection about what happened. So photograph of the scene, witnesses, and notify the city. If you fall on someone's property, you should let them know as well. Too. Anyway, that is my public service announcement for this one. Love it. Love it, guys. Want to get into some uh, emails right away. Again, anytime, help at disabilityrights.ca is how you send that over. Rachel, coming up first, says, uh, I've had depression and anxiety for most of my adult life, but the pandemic has made it worse. I started having frequent panic attacks and eventually stopped working altogether. I'm getting the LTD payments, but recently the insurance company's adjuster is being difficult, almost dismissive of my condition and pressuring me to go back to work when I'm not ready. What should I do? So I'm going to jump in here, Rachel, because mm. I was actually going to start off the show talking a little bit about accessing mental health supports. So I'm going to try and tie that in, uh, but deal with Rachel's email first, which is this. Look, it's not unusual, unfortunately, to have adjusters at insurers providing more resistance and pressure when you've got a mental health claim, unfortunately. I think that the insurers have come a little bit of ways. I think certainly as a society, there's a lot more awareness of how disabling mental health conditions can be. But generally speaking, these are the types of claims that become uh, more resisted or more readily terminated early before an individual is capable of returning back to work. Because it's one of these conditions that unfortunately is not a one size fits all. So You've got an adjuster now at the disability insurer who doesn't have any real medical background, doesn't really have a lot of resources even to access to get a greater understanding of what's happening with Rachel's situation or any others that are mental health based and is trying to bring the claim to a close. Because really that's the goal for the adjuster, right? Is let's pay these claims, but let's see how quickly that we can close them out or perhaps deny them out of the gates. And so if they can pressure Rachel to get back to work, they win on all fronts. They get an individual back to work. They bring the disability claim to a close. They don't have to pay your claim. And they feel justified in doing that because you have then then buckled to that pressure to actually return. The, the advice I would give to Rachel, frankly, is that she really would tr should try and resist that, frankly, because if her own doctors are not recommending that she return, then the likelihood of it being successful is low and then you're going to be fighting with a disability insurer about having your ongoing benefits or perhaps asserting a recurrence claim and so in a situation like this 
she needs to arm herself really with the advice and recommendations of her own treatment providers. Make sure that those symptoms are well documented, the treatment plan is well documented, and ensure that those details are being provided to the adjuster. And frankly, spoon feeding it to the adjuster as to how disabling this still is, what is the expected course of treatment. And if it's not yet known, it's absolutely okay for your treatment providers, Rachel, to say, we don't know yet. She's still trying different medications or different treatments, and we're going to reassess her in three months or six months or whatever the time frame might be. I think that what I'm more concerned about really is, is the adjuster actually impacting, impacting negatively what's happening with Rachel from a health and progress perspective? And this is not an easy thing to consider and use judgment upon, but I think there should be an awareness that if your dealings with the disability insurer are actually harming your health and triggering things and setting you back from a progress perspective, then it might also be time to have your medical treatment providers comment on the fact that this is exactly what's happening and that you need to be more regimented in your dealings with your adjuster, perhaps reduce them to writing as opposed to having unexpected phone calls or more regular phone calls that might be actually triggering certain symptoms and conditions. That is all absolutely fair, provided there's a medical basis to do that. And so why I wanted to tie this in with a broader perspective is that I know that there are some real challenges with individuals accessing appropriate treatment in situations where they've got mental health conditions. And I also know that disability insurers are very focused on the fact that you must see a psychiatrist in order for this to be valid, and nothing could be further from the truth. If those symptoms are validated, if you are getting treatment in however form it might be through your own family doctor, perhaps a counselor, therapist, frankly, even a pastor or some other um, you know, support system, that is all absolutely valid and supported and should be evidence to substantiate the disability claim. I know adjusters can get very focused on the fact that it must be an MD, there must be a diagnosis, but that only serves their own adjudication so that they can then make the expectation around when it is that you're going to have to be off claim or that claim can end. James, what do you think? Well, I am cognizant of the time. We only got about a minute left and uh, Mary is patiently waiting on the line and Mary will get to you after the break. Uh, I agree with everything that you're saying. I think you really have to be careful about going back to work against your doctor's orders. And I think it's really important where the insurer, where the claims handler is adding significant stress and anxiety. And that is your disability to begin with, that you document that very well with your treatment providers, whether it's your doctor or therapist, because that is relevant. Your insurer is making your situation worse by pressuring you that they are exposing themselves to having to pay more down the road, particularly if they turn you back. And that uh, will take a short break right now. Mary, see there, stand on the line. We're going to get you after a, a quick break for you as well. Feel free to call us and get on air. Talk to us. Get some answers. 416-872-1010. We'll continue here. Disability Law Show on the Bell Talk Radio Network. That guy's correct. It is Disability Law Show. Welcome back to it. Thanks for sticking around. You got the rest of the hour to make that phone call and talk. Get some answers. James and Tamara, two of the best in the business. There's anybody who can answer your concerns here quickly on the phone before we're carrying on to more of a private conversation. They're the ones you want to have with a 416-872-1010. Beyond that, the email help at disabilityrights.ca and uh, the phone number to reach uh, either of them and their their team, 1-855-821-5900. But as always, our callers, our good pals, top priority. Mary, thank you so much for uh, sitting back and sipping your coffee, waiting to get on the air with us. Uh, what's happening with you today? How are you? 
thank you for taking my call. On yeah. January 18th, I stayed overnight at a friend's. She and I were going on vacation the next morning, and the cab was to come at 3 o'clock. So we brought our luggage down, and we brought it outside the front door that's left, the lobby of the condo, and I tried to prop my luggage up against the post, and I, I, I managed to do that. And then when I turned around, I tripped over a rock that was there that I guess they had used for open, keeping the door open right. uh, when people were going in and out. Anyway, I went down very hard and fast and flat on, like, on my nose, just oh. an inch from the door. And I, I, there was blood everywhere, and at 3 o'clock in the morning, the cabbie came, and uh, he gave me a big cloth to clean off some of the blood. I, anyway, subsequently, very stupidly, I might add, I, we got in the cab thinking somehow we could still go. And fast, long story short, we got to the gate. gate. I, I already discovered I couldn't lift my luggage from that point. Something was broken. It felt my elbow. Anyway, uh, we got to the airport, the gate, and the pilot, uh, they called some they called paramet or they called uh, the fireman over to me, and he didn't. I was denied boarding. So my question to you is: uh, She went. I lost my vacation, and oh, I'm man. having more injuries besides fractures on my nose and my elbow. I'm I'm having more pain throughout my body, and the doctor said it's referred pain and uh, a terrible bruising on the face and uh, and and I'm waiting to try and get my money back as well and I haven't heard anything on that so I'm just I'm not a litigious person but I'm wondering about the cost of physio or going forward um, whether I should call the management of the condo and say look I don't want to take this to court to a lawyer but I I'm I, I need to have money for the for, uh, potentially physio or things that aren't covered um, on a health plan going forward. Okay, well, Should Mary, I I'm talk to them. I, I, yeah, so Mary, I, I, I'm first of all I'm obviously very sorry to hear that this happened. That is a terrible way to start out what was supposed to be a vacation. I can't yeah. even imagine how disappointed you must have been. Wow. Yeah. Um, so in, in terms of you know what do you do now, absolutely you should contact the, the condo management and let them know. Uh, and for anybody listening in a similar circumstance, try and do so right away. I mean, obviously, you might not have been able to do it that morning, but I would try and do it the same day if you can, or if not the day after. Uh, but in any case, it's important to try and notify whoever owns and is responsible for maintaining the property as soon as you reasonably can. In this particular I, I case, though, did, I actually did tell some of the, um, the the residents of the building, and and they they've since removed that rock. Although I haven't. Yeah, it. I, I will say though, Mary, telling the residents isn't the same thing as telling the management or ownership yeah, of the right, property. right. And so I, I'm just I want to make sure that, particularly for the listeners out there, that you make sure that you take that step. It's important to notify them. But in your case, Mary, I'm not entirely convinced that it matters that much. And I say that only because it's not as though you slipped and fell on ice and we're going to have to figure out whether there was maintenance done there. Uh, it was a rock that you fell on. And if that rock is, as you suggest, something that was put out there to prop the door open and had been left there and you fell on it, well, 
then all it really takes is confirmation from residents that this was something that had been out there on a regular basis and that that was something that the condo either knew about or even put out there on their own. And if that is the case, then they are probably going to bear some responsibility for for this accident. You ultimately might as might also bear some responsibility for it. It really depends on how the evidence shakes out. But you should certainly notify them now. And if your concern is strictly in terms of getting payment for your treatment, that is something they might wind up actually covering for you. Now, by they, I don't necessarily mean the condo. They probably have an insurer that will respond to this. Whether the insurer decides to pay or not is another question, but it can be in certain circumstances in the insurer's best interest to take steps to pay for treatment on a without prejudice basis, meaning they'll pay for it without acknowledging that they're necessarily responsible because they recognize that doing so might prevent litigation and will ultimately be less expensive for them than if you turn around and sue them. And even if they were successful, having to pay the lawyer to defend the case would be more expensive. So it can well be the case that they might decide that they would cover your your expenses just by notifying them and telling them uh, what uh, what treatment you're getting and what you're paying for out of pocket. They may decide to do that, but be careful because it is quite possible that they'll say something to the effect of, well, okay, we'll pay for your treatment as long as you make an agreement that you will not sue us down the road. And I appreciate your comments, Mary, that you are, in your view, not a litigious person. Um, I will tell you, this won't surprise you as a lawyer, I have no problem with anyone who is a litigious person personally, um, but I'm not suggesting you ought to be or that you should just turn around and sue them if it doesn't make any sense. If what we're talking about are discrete injuries that are going to heal in a reasonably quick amount of time with some treatment, and ultimately it's just easier for you to move on with your life, then that's what you should do. I don't have an issue with that. I don't think just because you theoretically could bring a claim against someone that you ought to but you want to make sure that you leave that option open because i don't i mean i haven't looked at any of your medical files mary but um, the the types of injuries you're describing if they are things that do not get better that cause you long-term issues and functional limitations and prevent you from being able to do the things that you like to do beyond just going on this particular vacation then it is something that you should be compensated for beyond just the cost of the treatment so you do want to make sure that you keep that option open. In any case, absolutely, you should be notifying the condo management. I hope that answers your question. Okay. Thank you very much. You're very welcome, Mary. Thank you, Mary. And I'm going to drop that. Uh, thank you very much. I'm going to drop that number on you just in case you want to have a further conversation uh, with James or Tamar at a future date. And that goes for you as well. If you're uh, if you're listening right now, always one eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. Again, one eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. And help at disabilityrights.ca. That's that's an, a really awesome and robust answer james and i think that that's a smart play is don't shut any door because you know these things can fester and you know six months a year from now mary's going to say you know what i'm dizzy i've got this ongoing headaches or whatever spinal problems where could this have cropped up from ah damn i slipped on that rock a year ago and now it's it's reared its ugly head again so but if you close that door with a the the aforementioned do never you you agree not to sue us then you're kind of you're kind of stuck at that point right yeah 
Yeah, you. I mean, depending on how well they've worded the agreement to pay for the the treatment, presumably they'll have their lawyers review it and close any options to bring a claim in the future. So, be very careful with that. The only way I I would make any agreement is if it's completely without prejudice, both to for their purposes and yours. And what I mean by that is it would be an agreement where they're paying for the treatment. But you still have the option to bring a claim down the road, and they, by paying for the treatment, have not in any way acknowledged or admitted that they are responsible for doing so. If that is the agreement, then I have no issue with it. But beyond that, you have to be very, very careful. Tomorrow, you got any comments in that regard? Yeah. yeah. I mean, look, of course, I wholeheartedly agree with James, but I want to pick up on something specifically that he mentioned when he was speaking to Mary, which was the, the idea of ensuring that you're documenting things. In fact, he was talking about this in the opening salvo as well. So in an ideal world as a lawyer, I mean, the, the, the beauty of all this is that you get the evidence in the same time frame or within the window of time that this occurred. It's called contemporaneous evidence. And so to the extent that Mary can even write out her thoughts or recollections of what occurred, um, even the details that she provided to us could be helpful to just journal. Uh, if she has spoken to certain people, if there were witnesses, for example, her friend that was with her that was traveling, perhaps the name and phone number of the of the taxi driver, these kinds of things. I get it that people don't necessarily think about it at, in the moment, but if there is a potential claim down the road, securing this evidence and knowing who was involved and who were the players were very, very important. And of course, the number one thing is making sure that you do actually have an incident report with the condo in this case or whoever the occupier is, the individual or entity that is responsible for maintaining the area upon which you have sustained injury. Awesome stuff, guys. We're going to take a short break and get right back to it. That is why you call the show and have that discussion, 416-872-1010 to do exactly that. An email, which we're going to get back to as well, that is help at disabilityrights.ca. And we continue with more of the Disability Law Show on the Bell Talk Radio Network. Back indeed. It is one uh, thirty-five. Plenty of time for you to join us here on the show. So uh, come on in. Water's warm. The uh, the phone number four one six eight seven two ten ten to reach out and talk to us here on air. Beyond that, you can always reach out to James and Tamara through email help at disabilityrights.ca and another free and anonymous venue uh, website built just for you to ask those questions. You can type them into your smartphone, your tablet, your desktop, whatever. Mydisabilityquestions.com. Again, mydisabilityquestions.com. Moving on down to Mark's email says, guys, my doctor believes I'm ready to return to work, but with restrictions and on a part-time basis, after speaking to my boss, he doesn't think he can accommodate my requests. If I lose my job and I'm still unable to work full-time, will my benefits be cut off? Okay, so there's really two parts to this question here, Mark. And I I think actually I'm going to let Tamara answer part of this, the question relating to the, or the issue relating to the accommodation in the workplace. Uh, but the the other part of it I can handle, uh, which is if I lose my job and, my st- and, and I'm still unable to work full-time, will my benefits be cut off? This is a hard no. Whether or not you lose your job has nothing to do with your access to your long-term disability benefits once you make the claim. The moment you go on leave is the moment where your benefits become crystallized, where your coverage is crystallized. So if at any point afterwards you lose your job and you no longer have your health benefits or LTD benefits, that has no impact whatsoever on your ability to continue to make and receive, make the claim and receive benefits for long-term disability from the same medical leave of absence. 
So if I go on disability, if I go on medical leave today and three weeks from now, my employer terminates me, that does not mean I can't apply for long-term disability benefits, even if I no longer have ongoing benefits. The day I go on leave, my access to the to the plan is crystallized. And regardless of what happens with my employment, I will continue to get benefits as long as I can show I am continuously disabled. And that would go all the way up to age 65 if that's the way it plays out from a medical standpoint, regardless of what happens with the employment. But tomorrow, I think the other part of this is probably a little bit more interesting about the accommodation, we have to say. Absolutely, James. And so... It's a good reminder for our listeners that we actually practice disability law and employment law, mm-hmm. along with a couple of other offshoots with personal injury work and that and that sort of thing. But I think with Mark's email in particular, it really highlights that intersection of how you see disability claims intersect with employment claims. And so we are, you know, well suited as in our team with lawyers like myself who practice in both areas. Because in a situation like Mark's, I think that you want to see the disability part of the claim sort of play itself out to some extent. Because he's asking us, look, I mean, you know, what if I have a partial work capacity? Part of this is, is he still entitled to long-term disability benefits? And I think the answer to that is yes, if he's not exceeding a certain threshold of work capacity or work level. I've got a few ongoing claims right now where it's a top-up claim, in essence, against the disability insurer because the individual is not able to return fully in terms of full-time hours or duties. Now, we've got to be careful around what the disability policy says and what the exposure is potentially to the disability insurer. But I think it's important for our listeners to know that there could be a midway road there where you're working a little bit and also receiving disability benefits. So that's one add-on on the disability side. On the employment side, the employer absolutely has a duty to accommodate you. They, the, that duty is to the point of undue uh, you know, uh, justice or undue uh, financial hardship. In other words, unless the employer really can demonstrate that there is some financial reason why they can't work with you in that accommodation process or perhaps offer you some kind of um, work arrangement, work share, there's a whole host of things that come to mind, then they are not meeting that duty. And it's not an easy one, I got to tell you. It is a process that both Mark and his employer will have to engage in to find something that works within his restrictions and limitations. But it is not appropriate for the employer to just simply say, no, we, we just can't or we don't think we can. And to resist your return or resist the process that that is fair, which is either a gradual return or some kind of partial work capacity as you're regaining your health and getting back into things um, after a disability leave. And let's move on, guys. Uh, good answer there. We're going to move on to our next. Oh, I mentioned mydisabilityquestions.com, right? It's anonymous. Right. I got no name in this one, so that's how it works. So it's it's working as it should. Again, mydisabilityquestions.com. You can use this anytime. Says, I've been on LTD for almost two years due to depression and anxiety and fatigue. I've followed all recommendations from the doctor and insurance company. They would like to send me to an occupational therapist. I'm unsure this will help as I'm still not able to do my job. Can I be forced to try any type of job if they feel I should? I'm nearing 60 and feeling very stressed about trying something new. Thank you. What do you think, guys? Well, so I think that it's fair to have some level of stress. And and I can absolutely empathize and appreciate that that shouldn't necessarily come from a reality that you're not really certain whether any type of employment makes sense for you, particularly at that age. 
And so what's important to contextualize here with this question from mydisabilityquestions.com is, look, where is this individual in their claim? Is it the phase of own occupation or any occupation, or is there no change definition at all? Because this is the thing with disability policies is that they are intentionally drafted this way, where at some point the test or eligibility to continue to qualify changes. And in most policies, that change happens after roughly two years of payments. And then at that point, or just shortly before, the disability insurer will need to make an assessment as to whether or not you're going to get over that hump and receive disability benefits for being uh, unable as a result of your health to do any gainful occupation, anything for which you've got the minimum education and training requirements, and that would fit within your ongoing health restrictions and limitations. And that analysis and that onus is very much on the disability insurer. So, I'm not surprised, actually, that they're contemplating an occupational therapy assessment. Not sure if that's really going to help in terms of the disability profile, but they have to do some rigors and adjudication to get to a point where they can make a sound analysis as to whether or not your disability benefits will continue. So if you're listening and you're sort of thinking, well, this sounds kind of familiar, what do I do here, Tamar? Well, number one, you, you want to make sure that it's well documented what your current restrictions and limitations are what your own treatment providers are saying about your capacity to work, and not just the job you were doing before you stopped working, but any work setting, anything that would provide you roughly what you're getting as your LTD benefit. That is really what the courts are looking at as the threshold or the benchmark for these alternative jobs. And if nothing quite fits within that framework, then if the disability insurer makes the unfortunate decision to cut you off at that two-year mark or at that change of definition, suggesting that there is, in fact, something else you could do at age 60, um, you know, if they've done some mental gymnastics to justify it, mm -hmm. then by all means, this is the time to have a conversation with a disability lawyer. I mean, our consults are absolutely free. Yes, I really like the anonymity around some of the other features that we've got, mydisabilityquestions.com being one of them. You can send us emails and what have you. But I think that if you are going to be declined benefits or you've received that decline letter, it is absolutely worth having one of us look at it for a couple minutes, have a quick chat with you, and we can talk about options. Does what the insurer as is is what the insurer is saying to you, what they're doing with your adjudication of your claim. Does that make sense, given all of the things I've described, that the disability insurer has to check off? They have to look at your health. They have to take a fair assessment of that. They have to look at your background and your education and training. They have to analyze that. And then they have to line that up with these potential alternative occupations that they have to identify, that they can say reasonably that you can do in order to bring your claim to a close. What do you think, James? I agree. I mean, I think, you know, at the heart of it, you know, he's asking or she's asking, I'm not sure, can I be forced to try any type of job if they feel I should? And the simple answer to that is no. They can't force you to do anything. If you disagree that you're able to do it, if you're not comfortable doing it, you don't have to. Now, that may result in them cutting off your benefits, in which case, of course, you want to come to us and see whether or not it's something that we can dispute. But no one can force you to go do any job, whether it's your own or some occupation that they're saying that you can do. Peter, you are up next on the phones, but I got to take a quick break. So stand by, my friend. We will get to you. And if you have a call to bring on as well, you have a question, do it right now. 416-872-1010. Then we'll get back to some more email with the remaining uh, time of the show. That is help at disabilityrights.ca. We roll on after the break. More of the Disability Law Show on the Bell Talk Radio Network.
And welcome back to it. So good to have you joining us this afternoon. I want to remind you that after the show, you can always continue the conversation on a lengthier, more private matter with either James or Tamar. That number, one 821 is how you go about, uh, go about doing that. Help at disabilityrights.ca as well. But always, our phone calls top priority. Peter, thank you so much for standing by for a moment. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Uh, don't often listen to 1010 on the weekend, always during the day, uh, during the week, but I'm glad I'm listening right now. I have an odd question to ask. I'm going sure. from the bargaining unit into management. And in the bargaining unit, we had to pay an STD uh, every biweekly. Um, I'm four years out of retirement. I get 120 days of STD, and I have two years if I want to go early. So my question is this. Is it worth purchasing LTD at this point in my career? Purchasing LTD, so you don't have it at this yeah. point. No, I had like yeah. So going into the, so we had. I understand. To it. You had it while you were while you were in the bargaining unit. Now that yeah, you're so we in had to. So now going in the management, it's an option, right? So and I can retire here, in four here, years. So. It, it, it's you know a, a fair question. I'm going to assume that you're asking the context of actually having a disability that would that could yeah, let's prevent say, you from I mean, being no able to work. You, you're, you're not going to think you're going to get it, but <laughs> let's say worst case scenario, I can purchase up to fifty five percent, up to like a hundred percent. So you know it's obviously more. Um, so I'm wondering here's, if it's worth the money. Here's the issue, Peter. Even if it is worth the money per se, you won't get it. And I say you won't get it, not because I know anything about your disability. Uh, I say it because if you were to purchase a policy now and you try and bring a claim within the next year, they're going to deny your claim on the basis of a pre-existing condition. And so this well, is important for you to understand. no medical right now. And if I it's, check all it the isn't a ma- you, you don't need to get a medical examination to get your insurance, but that doesn't that doesn't protect you from getting a denied because of a pre-existing condition. And so the way pre-existing conditions work, and this is important to understand, if you apply for disability insurance and you have coverage for the first year that you're covered, usually it's a year, but you want to check the policy to make sure, but let's assume it's a year. If you go on disability within that first year, then they will take a look and see whether or not you have been treated, and usually that could mean uh, you know, even just medication, just getting a refill of your medication. Certainly, if you've gone to see a doctor um, at any point before for this condition, or sometimes it's within a certain time frame before you became insured. If that was something that existed before, they are likely going to deny your claim on the basis of that pre-existing condition. You do not need to get a medical to get the insurance. That's not what this is about. That is a different issue. This is getting the insurance. They don't need to know whether you have anything. But if you go on claim in the first year, they're going to say, well, you already had this when you applied. So you're not entitled to get benefits for it because that would essentially just be scamming the system. It would just be a way of... Even if you didn't have any conditions, like I'm knock on wood, think I'm completely healthy. Um... I'm just looking down the road if something happens. If you're saying you don't have something right now, if there's nothing that you have right now, then sure. 
Sure. If, you know, if there's no medical, then it's going to be a standard policy. And if you're just concerned about whether or not you're going to be covered, then yeah, although you'll want to take a look at what options are available, because there might be the possibility to get an extension of coverage beyond 65. And that can be really important for you because you really don't have that I'm, long. I'm out, at, I'm out at 54. <laughs> okay. Nice. Okay. Nice. Well, you know, it, interesting you should say that because if you do wind up beca- becoming disabled before, then depending on uh, how the policy is worded, you may well have the opportunity to continue on disability benefits and continue to get contributions towards your pension That's for right. longer if you haven't reached the full pension amount. Um, there, there are a lot of different nuances there, but. Generally speaking, I think it's a good idea to protect yourself. I, I, I had understood your question, Peter, to be suggesting that you already had a disability. Really no, 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 no. It would be $100 a month. Yeah, and, and you know that's you know, a financial question that I can't answer, whether you, ha- you can afford that. But if you can, then sure. Yeah, by all means. Okay. Um, keeping in mind that it may well be limited in the sense that, you know, at a minimum, you know, the four years until retirement, but it's possible that it could extend beyond that, even if your intention had been to retire uh, within four years. If you haven't reached 100% pension, there's a good chance that if you and remain just, just disabled, to, you would be able to continue getting those benefits. And just to finish it, so what, if I did it, when should I can't, if I'm going to, re- on my retirement year, and I've got 120 STD, I should cancel that sooner, as soon as that STD comes up, if I plan on retiring? Not necessarily. If you if you do retire, then yes, but if it's a plan to retire, you still get yourself the, the cover. As soon as you put in the retirement papers, yes. But until you do that, I wouldn't, because the reality is if you become disabled at any point before then, then you're going to be entitled to get your benefits, and oftentimes it will extend even a year beyond that. And at $100 a month, it's probably worth, worth maintaining the coverage. Okay. Well, you've, you've, clear, you've clarified that for me. It was just, I just, you know, you get that point in your career going, is it worth paying for something anymore? For you sure. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. You know, one of the other things I was thinking about, thank you. Thank you for your call, Peter. Um, what I, what I was thinking about in Peter's call is oftentimes we get a lot of questions around, look, what should I do with coverages? And my fallback position is always to say, Hey, we're disability lawyers and not insurance brokers. Mm-hmm. But having said that, you know, as disability lawyers, you know, the policies that really are, um, good, so to speak, are actually ones that have a cost of living adjustment. So if, if you're in a situation like Peter and you're looking at your different options and thinking, look, what's the value proposition here? One of the things I say to individuals is if you can get a little bump up and get a cost of living adjustment onto your LTD benefit as an add-on, as a different option, that one is very, very helpful, can be very um, lucrative, so to speak, because it doesn't then uh, set your disability benefit level for the whole time of your disability policy, potentially pegging it at your earnings when you became disabled. So think of a scenario where someone might be totally disabled at age 50. Most disability policies pay benefits until they're 65, but your LTD benefit will be locked in, so to speak, at your salary level when you were 50 years old. And so if you are actually on claim for that full 15-year duration, it is helpful to have that little bump up with the cost of living adjustment year over year in order to bring it up with, you know, things like contravailing factors like inflation that we're really feeling right now. So I just wanted to add that to uh, to the uh, phone call that Peter 
I, I think that's a re- really great point to make. I totally agree with the cost of living adjustment uh, rider can get it. And what I actually don't think is a good rider to get is the own occupation rider, uh, which is an option that's available that would allow you to continue your benefits beyond the two years if you were disabled from your own occupation, but not another. And the reason I say that, and it's not necessarily the case in every situation, but I say it because far more often than not, even when the test changes at the two-year mark, you're still not going to, uh, the insurer is still not going to be able to deny coverage, or if they do, it's going to be very easy to challenge them. And I think if you have that own occupation rider, it probably weighs into the initial adjudication because they know as soon as they approve you that you're going to be on for a very long time in all likelihood, and that might actually make it more difficult to get approved at the outset. Just my thoughts on it. Not everyone's going to agree with that. Interesting. Good, Good one. way. Good way to wrap it up for the uh, for the day, guys. Appreciate your phone calls and your emails and your reaching out. You can continue to do so to James and Tamar. Here's how. 1-855-821-5900. Help at disabilityrights.ca. And we'll catch you next week on the Disability Law Show here on the Bell Talk Radio Network.